0: Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7
1: billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Welcome, dressed listeners, to another edition of Fashion History Mystery. This week, we actually are bringing you an extra special episode, which is not exactly a listener question, but rather an add-on to our full-length episode from this past Tuesday. This week, in the spirit of the upcoming U.S. presidential election, we re-aired our episode with fashion historian Risa Britannia, which explores the role style played in the American suffrage movement.
0: Yes, and during our conversation, Risa and I were discussing the need to bring to light some narratives, somewhat lost to history, of the women of color who campaigned for women's right to vote, and today we are so happy to share with you a little bit of the suffragist story of Miss Mabel Ping-Hua Lee. And while her story may not be entirely novel to serious scholars of the American suffrage movement, Cass, I thought it was so moving, and I just really, really wanted to share it with all of you, our listeners.
1: Yeah, so born in 1896 or 97, depending on the source, in Guangzhou, China, around the time Mabel turned four, her father, Li To, moved to the United States to become a Christian missionary, and he ministered to Chinese communities living in the United States. Young Mabel stayed behind in China with her mother and grandmother, studying under Chinese private tutors until she reached the age of nine. And after receiving a scholarship created to bring promising young Chinese students to study in the States, Mabel joined her father, ultimately settling in the Chinatown neighborhood of New York City.
0: And Mabel attended Erasmus Hall Academy in Brooklyn, which is um, one of the oldest schools in the country. And it was founded in 1786. And some of the school's original funding, I found this really interesting, came from the nation's founding fathers, among others, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. So there's a little tidbit for you Hamilton fans out there. But while in school, Mabel's preternatural intelligence really shone amongst her classmates. She learned English extremely quickly, math. Latin. She just took on all these subjects, like, you know, like a duck to water, I suppose one could say. And by the age of 16, she had been admitted to Barnard, which was and still remains a very scholastically rigorous women's college affiliated with Columbia
1: University seemingly a natural-born leader and activist, Mabel made a name for herself within the women's suffrage community as a teenager, as a very young woman. So in 1912, the New York Tribune did a profile on Mabel in advance of her nomination to lead what has now become this legendary suffrage parade uh, through the streets of New York City. The Tribune declared her, quote, a symbol of the new era and noted that she, quote, intends to march in the suffrage parade on May 4th. No not march, but ride on horseback in Miss Annie R. Tinker's brigade of horsewomen who will head the procession. She will be clad like the rich and fashionable suffragettes around her in a tight-fitting black broadcloth black habit and a tri-cornered black hat with the green, purple, and white cockade of the women's political union.
0: And what a sight this parade must have been, Cass. I mean, the description of it in all of these articles is pretty amazing. An estimated 10,000 people marched um, in this parade, and the press coverage of the event is actually quite extensive, so we know quite a lot about it. But as a 16-year-old Chinese woman, Mabel's presence among her white colleagues on horseback was remarked upon by the New York Times, which also wrote, quote, It was a parade of contrasts, contrasts among women. There were women of every occupation and profession and women of all ages from those so advanced in years they had to ride in carriages down to the suffragettes so small they were pushed along in perambulators. which of course, our strollers now. And it goes on to say, There were women whose faces bore traces of a life of hard work and many worries. There were young girls, lovely of face and fashionably gowned. There were motherly-looking women and others with a confident bearing obtained from contact with the business world.
1: There were women who smiled in a preoccupied way as though they had just put the roast in the oven, whipped off their apron. Sorry, that's pretty funny. (laughs) Um, and hurried out to be in the parade. They were plainly worried at leaving their household cares for so long, um, yet they were determined to show their loyalty to the cause. There were women who marched those weary miles who had large bank accounts. There were slender girls tired after long hours of factory work. There were nurses, teachers, cooks, writers, social workers, librarians, schoolgirls, laundry workers, There were women who work with their heads and women who work with their hands and women who never work at all, and they all marched for suffrage.
0: Okay, so I'm not going to lie, when I first read that, when I was doing research of this episode, that little passage really got to me. I was like sitting there typing, like fighting back tears on my computer. (laughs) Um, It's just very moving to hear about, you know, everyone being out in the streets like that. Also, it wasn't just women at the parade. More than 1,000 men also walked. Um, and according to the New York Times, a lot of these men were taunted unmercifully for supporting the women marchers. They point out all these different things that happened. The policemen kind of like binding the parade were laughing at them. They were repeatedly called henpecked, and the Times notes jabs such as, can't you get a wife? Why don't you try up ahead? These kind of taunts were common, and, and other times the male onlookers watching the parade simply hissed at the men who were marching alongside the women. You know, other times, though, I have to say, the men marchers exploded into applause so that the women marchers around them couldn't hear all of these vile insults that were being flung at them by the parade onlookers.
1: So basically, I mean, to say that these women fought to gain the right to vote is no understatement, friend, and it's not a metaphor. I mean, in case these women are using their bodies in the streets to fight for the right to vote. And this battle waged on, as we know, for more than 70 years. And once at Barnard, Mabel continued her fight for women's enfranchisement. In 1914, at the age of 18, she published an article in the Chinese Student Monthly that argued the moral, legal, political, and economic rationales for women fully participating in the democratic process.
0: And this article, I have to say, is a pretty staggering piece of writing cast for an 18-year-old. I mean, I wish I could have written like that when I was her age. I wish I could write like that now, just saying. You know, she was extremely gifted, and I suppose then it comes as no surprise then That after she graduated Barnard with a history and philosophy degree, she went on to Columbia Teachers College to gain a master's in education administration. Of course, all the while continuing her activism, you know, continuing to participate heavily with the Chinese Students Association and also the Women's Political Union in their suffrage work.
1: It would not be until Mabel was nearly complete with her Ph.D. in economics at Columbia that American women federally gained the right to vote. The 19th Amendment was, of course, passed in August of 1920, so 100 years ago, as we know, this year. However, Mabel, one of, if not the first Chinese woman to graduate with a Ph.D. in economics, mind you, was far from gaining the vote herself. So due to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which precluded her from becoming a citizen, Mabel would have to wait more than 20 years before this even became a possibility. The Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943.
0: So following the publication of her PhD work as a book, which was entitled The Economic History of China, Mabel fully intended to return to China to devote her life to, as she said, quote, helping my own people. And in these innervating years, while Mabel had been in school, her father, Li To, had really become this pillar of the Chinese and Chinese-American community in New York. Um, and he was jokingly referenced as the mayor of Chinatown <laughs> in the press sometimes. But of course, you know, he was a religious figure. And in the course of his work as a reverend, he endeavored to keep the peace between rival Chinese tongs. and They're kind of groups. I don't necessarily want to call them gangs. That's a little more nuanced than that. But let's just say there was a lot of rivalry and violence playing out between these factions, and he tried to intervene and keep the peace. Unfortunately, however, he sacrificed his life to this cause in 1924, only three years after Mabel had finally completed her PhD work.
1: Mabel returned to New York at this time to continue her father's work, acting as the de facto director of the First Chinese Baptist Church of New York City, and going on to found the Chinese Christian Center, which was a comprehensive community center that offered health services, English classes, and childcare services. For more than four decades, Mabel Lee served the needs of her community before passing away at the age of 70 in 1966.
0: And I'm pretty sure I can guess what many of you are thinking right now, because I, too, was thinking this when I started diving into all the details of her life and looking at primary sources that were talking about her work in the suffrage movement in the 1910s. You know, the burning question is, did Mabel ever get to vote? And the answer is, we don't know. So, uh, more than one exceptionally reputable source states that is simply not known if Mabel ever gained her U.S. citizenship, and also exercised her right to vote. And I know that's a little bit of a bittersweet ending to our story today, but what an incredible life this woman-led Cass. You know, she was entirely devoted to the betterment of others. And it's very possible that she knew that she herself may never, ever reap the fruits of her own labor in terms of gaining the right to vote, but there she was right there on the front line doing the work anyway so that all of us ladies would see the benefits
1: today which is again on that note why we implore all of our us listeners to please get out and vote in this year's election don't let mabel down don't let the oh. women and men and all <laughs> the individuals of course who have marched before us you know let's let's vote in their honor and and may you consider it the freedom to express your voice sartorial or otherwise next time you get dressed. That does it for us this week. Please join us next Tuesday
0: for a full-length episode, and we always love hearing from you, so if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com, and you can also message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where you better bet we will be posting some images of not only Mabel, but lots of other really fascinating movers and shakers in the American suffrage movement as we move forward this week.
1: Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. <music> Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.